Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing great, Pete. How are you today? Oh, everything's good. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, so today we have an episode for you on a problem in shoulder surgery that we're still working to solve, which is the evaluation and management of acromial stress fractures after a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. We've invited two experts to provide their insight. First, we have Dr. Larry Galata of the Hospital for Obstetrics Surgery in New York City. Larry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Rachel. Happy to be here. And second, we have Dr. Steve Parada, who's in the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys very much. Thanks for the invite. All right, so let's just start at the beginning with the etiology. Now, Larry, you've done a bunch of biomechanical and computer simulation work in this area. Tell us, what do you think are the main factors that contribute to this problem? Yeah, so it's a good question. I think we're still figuring that out. <laughs> but um, but in the lab, I think one thing that we've gotten caught up on the lab, which I think was misguided, is the tension by which we put the replacements in. Because in the lab, all we can do is really test the cadaver and see how tight we're putting them in and what sort of forces that then translate onto the acromion. But I'll tell you, I'm curious to see what you guys think about it. Uh, but in my clinical practice, I find this to be more of a dynamic problem. In fact, actually, the one, shoulders I put in a little tight that are stiff, those don't seem to be the ones that get acromial stress fractures. Uh, rather, it's um, the patients who have a little bit more flexibility, they get their motion back very quickly. And then I think uh, what ends up happening is that it's a dynamic pull of the deltoid on the acromion that ends up causing this uh, stress fracture. So if you ask sort of what the classic setup for a patient is, it happens to be a, a female more than men, uh, happens to be patients with osteoporosis, um, it happens to be patients that have cuff tear arthropathy, so there's really no cuff there at all, uh, and so they're really dependent on that deltoid postoperatively. And then it's the patients that were pretty debilitated beforehand. I mean, these are patients that haven't lift up, lifted up their arm for maybe years before they end up having their shoulder replacement. And then they show up at three months and they can do everything uh, sort of all at once. And those are the patients that I'm really concerned about that seem to be at high risk. And that's, that's a lot of what the clinical data would show as well. I love the way you laid it out almost as like a mismatch between a deltoid strength and, you know, a chromial ability to resist that strength. I wanted to follow up with you with one one specific thing you guys did with the coracoacromial ligament. Now, I, I've read this paper several times and I still have trouble wrapping my head around how cutting the CA ligament increases the strain. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is actually an idea of one of my partners, Sam Taylor. I think it was a great idea. And his thought was that that ligament is there. Uh, we don't respect it very much. Every acromioplasty we do, we take it down. Um, and a lot of shoulder replacement surgeons will take it down as well, but it's a pretty robust ligament, and therefore it must be seeing some load somewhere along the way. And we found that in the laboratory, when you cut that ligament, the stress ends up concentrating right at the scapular spine. So um, it, it doesn't necessarily increase the overall stress on the acromion itself, it just concentrates it all at the scapular spine. So the thought is that potentially cutting the CA ligament at the time of reverse shoulder replacement might be a modifiable risk factor for preventing at least the scapular spine stress fracture. Now that's in the biomechanics. Um, we've yet to be able to parse that out in a clinical study, but these are relatively rare instances. And I think it'll take a long time for us to have a definitive answer to that. 
Now, Steve, tell us your thoughts. What do you think causes the problem? Are you cutting the CA ligament? Do you think that's part of the problem? No, I think that's I think that's a really interesting point because I think you know we we cut the CA ligament so often in other cases and you know without any seeming you know seemingly uh, compromise that that ever happens and so I, I think it's interesting. So I I don't um, I don't routinely cut it, but I don't have any problem with cutting it if I felt like that was affecting my you know my visibility or my glenoid exposure. And so I think, you know, obviously all the things that like Larry talked about, um, and then I think the, the scapular morphology is something that, we, you know, we, we are trying to, you know, pay more and more attention to because we feel like a lot of these patients are probably set up for their underlying pathology from the get-go as far as, you know, where their acromion is and whether or not they, you know, with the critical shoulder angle, whether they, they go on to get cuff arthropathy or arthritis. And so I think the, their underlying reason of why you're doing a reverse probably matters. And I think we've all seen those patients who just have a wafer-thin acromion because they've been riding so high for so long and they have so much acromial wear. And those are the ones that I always get, you know, obviously very nervous about. But to be fair, I've never actually had one of those that goes on to, to get either a stress fracture or a completed fracture. And so the same with the, the patients with, with an os. And so we see these patients that have an os and we wonder, you know, about them, especially based on the morphology of the os. But again, those, those aren't the patients that I'm seeing get these uh, stress reactions or fractures afterwards. I don't know, Larry, what your thoughts are on that. No, I agree with you. We, we looked up the, a bunch of patients and we called it a comp, you know, quote unquote compromised acromion. Either it had some fragmentation or they had an os acromiale or it was just extraordinarily thin. And uh, those are not the ones, to your point, that get into trouble. And in fact, that goes back to a time I visited Gilles Walsh in Lyon, France. He said that too. He says, oh, you don't have to worry about that, which seemed a bit cavalier, but I think uh, he has more experience or had at the time more experience than anybody. And so I think that that was saying something. I, you know, I really, I do think it's about this increased function that happens in a relatively short period of time. I mean, this is a stress fracture. And so, I mean, Steve, you know, when military cadets march, they get second metatarsal fractures or people uh, ramp up their training for marathons, they get tibial stress fractures or femoral neck stress fracture. You know, and I think that's what's happening with the shoulder here is when they go from zero to 60 in a relatively short period of time, uh, then they get their setup for these fractures. And obviously the osteoporosis and other things can contribute to it as well. But, but it's almost like it's a, it's a byproduct of, quite frankly, how good and how miraculous this procedure can be for certain patients. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great point. And I think we, you know, we try to, from looking at these so much, you know, the, that patient that you described, kind of that high-risk uh, elderly female, you know, inflammatory arthritis, osteoporosis, uh, all those pre-existing factors, we kind of talk to them and say, you know, we try to head it off in the past by saying, like, listen, in your post-op, you know, period, if you're getting any soreness on top, not like, you know, muscle strain like some of them get, but actual that pinpoint acromial soreness, like if you get any of that, then we're kind of shutting you down um, and we're taking a step away from therapy for a few weeks and we're really going to slow things down. And we counsel our patients, um, those at-risk patients on that ahead of time. Because like you said, they feel so good. It's otherwise hard to keep them um, in their sling. I mean, they're, they're feeling good and they, they're using the shoulder for the first time 
in years, sometimes you know more than a decade, they, they want to use their shoulder. And so I think it is really hard to slow them down. Yeah, yeah, I think you, you make a really good point there, Steve. And I've noticed that too, that a lot of these have some sort of like prodromal symptoms or so. It doesn't, I've had a couple patients where it's been very acute. Obviously, there, there's a subset of patients that do have traumas. They fall and they can break their acromion. And that's, that's been a rare uh, group of patients, I'd say. Um, but most patients, yeah, for me, it's almost always, it's really that three to six month point. They're doing phenomenal. And then they start to get some achiness on the top of the shoulder. And I just like you, it's, you know, the first part of the, that follow-up visit, at least when they're doing well, is, listen, I'm so glad that you're doing well. But now, you know, you're doing physical therapy. You're using your arm. You're changing every light bulb in the house. You're dusting every top shelf in the house that has been dusted for years. You know, you're doing more with your shoulder than I'm doing with my shoulder. And I did not have a reverse shoulder replacement within the past uh, year or so. So, so we need to calm it down. And, and for me, even a lot of those patients, I've been quick to take, take them out of physical therapy. A, a lot of our New York patients um, really feel like they have to do physical therapy and they're going to be in physical therapy for months and months. They, they love doing it for some reason. Um, but that three-month patient who's doing really, really well, I'll tell them, hey, listen, I don't think you need to do physical therapy anymore. I think just using your shoulder is all you need to do. And yeah, God forbid you start to get any pain on the top of the shoulder, you got to call me right away and we got to shut you down and nip that in the bud before it becomes a bigger problem. Yeah, same. I think com completely same. And I think, you know, we can, we can obviously go into to diagnosis. When we looked at a bunch of pool data, you know, we found that up to a fifth of these, you know, end up never being visible on x-ray. And obviously you have a lot of overlapping metal in the views that can be tough to see. But I don't even really, for me, the further imaging is rarely, you know, something that we need to do because we are, just like you said, if patients get these symptoms, then we're just, we're slowing everything down. We're putting them back in a sling or we put them in a huge abduction pillow to really relax the tension. And we, you know, we, we tell them to take a hard pause, physical therapy. We see them back to four to six weeks and we don't restart anything until they're symptom free. And again, a lot of those, you know, I think that probably happens. Um, and it's hard to make an official diagnosis of whether that's a, a stress reaction or a stress fracture. And so the number, you know, when we looked at a lot of these different series and the number gets up to, you know, 10, 11%, it's probably how, you know, just really how aggressively they're going after getting that diagnosis. And so a lot of times I think the lower, you know, couple percent that we see more often in series probably isn't including those patients that just get that superior shoulder pain and we're slowing them down because then they get better and it doesn't go on to be, you know, a big problem with their rehab. And I saw a lady today, she's one year post-op and she had, you know, she was the exact patient that we're, that we're describing and we slowed her down and she did great. And her numbers, she's had bilateral uh, reverses. And so when I look at her numbers that we took today, uh, the one side versus the other, as far as where her range of motion and her strength and everything like that, she didn't, you know, she did, she did fine. And that's what we expect. We expect them to go on and still be able to, um, these patients that don't go on to a complete fracture, we expect them to go on and still get, you know, just do just as well as our other patients. And so that's always great uh, when we're able to see that. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think it could be really devastating for patients because, again, they're they're flying and then and then they have the setback. 
and they really think, oh boy, I'm back to square one again. And I mean, that is the conversation. You got to pull up your chair and spend some time in there talking to the patient and tell them, listen, you know, we get an x-ray. I don't see anything. There's no mechanical complication. I don't see any obvious displaced fractures. I think you're getting the stress reaction slash deltoid tendonitis slash very early acromial stress fracture, you know, whatever part of the spectrum of the pathology you want to put them on, I think it's more just semantics uh, to your point. Um, but we got to shut it down now. And, and I don't see any signs of an infection uh, on, on your skin, or at least no overt signs of it. So anything that's scary, I'm not seeing it's happening. And this is something that we do see. It's, it's relatively common. If you're going to run into a problem, this is one of the more common problems you're going to run into. And I, I call it an obstacle, not a complication at this point. And saying we'll get like over that. the obstacle, but you are going to have to shut it down. So. We'd like to ask you guys, do you think that there are implant-related factors at play here? Are there certain implant geometries that are more prone to this problem than others? Steve, let's start with you. Any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, think, you know, calling this a deltoid tension problem, then we think that implants that are distalizing and inferiorizing, um, you know, more is obviously going to, you know, at least we would suspect if we're doing that in the lab that we, that that's going to lead to more of a problem. I think, you know, most of the time, if we're just kind of lateralizing on the glenoid side, you know, to make up for, you know, bone, bone loss and medialization, then I think, you know, technically you're using, you know, lateralizing through the base plate or lateralizing through the glenosphere, but you're just kind of making up for their wear pattern. So I don't think that's um, as big of a deal and so I think, you know, luckily, this is a small enough problem that it's hard to study clinically. So when we do these biomechanical studies, there, you know, it just kind of, um, looking at the biomechanical studies, it's just more kind of like the obvious things like, well, the more we put the deltoid on stretch, probably the more we affect this. And so implants that do that will probably have a higher rate in the lab. I'm not sure that translates clinically. Yeah, see, yeah, I actually think, I think because we went down that route a lot, we looked at x-rays and we looked for distalization, um, you know, for medialization. We looked for signs and then we looked at it in the lab too. So how tight can we put these in and, and do we start to run into trouble? And, and I really don't think that the time zero tightness, um, the distalization that you put in uh, really ends up affecting this whatsoever. It, it doesn't seem to affect it clinically. It doesn't necessarily affect it in the laboratory when we look at it. Um, and and I, so to my kind of back where I started with this, I think this is a dynamic problem. Now, I'm going to say the short answer and the official answer to your question, Rachel, that I'm going to stick with is that I don't know. And I'm not making any hard and fast uh, decisions or proclamations here. Um, but, you know, I, I will say if you look at some of the systematic reviews, it would show an implant design with a lateral center of rotation on the glenoid and a medialized humerus does put you at, at higher risk. Now, I think, though, that the people who have reported on that type of an implant, like John Levy and Mark Frankel, for example, are extraordinarily honest reporters that are probably including more of those patients with the quote-unquote stress reaction that Steve talked about. So I don't think that in and of itself is proof that that type of design um, is at, puts you at risk. That, that being said, if you do start to look at free body diagrams, that type of design does start to decrease the moment arm that the deltoid works. 
Uh, and therefore, the deltoid does have to create more force because it has, has less torque. It has a lower moment arm. It needs to create more force to achieve the same amount of rotation, to go back to high school physics. Um, and, and so I think from a theoretical standpoint, there could be some hand-waving explanations. Um, but, but I would say, again, the short answer to it, that's kind of just a geek out session right there. Um, I, I don't know is the, is the short answer. I, you know, it's interesting. We showed the same thing in our own lab that what you said about lateralized center rotation with medialized humerus, that that really puts the deltoid at more of a relative disadvantage and requires greater force in the deltoid to create the same amount of motion. I, but I totally agree with you that it's probably not that simple because that's one among a multitude of factors. <laughs> you know, there's other factors people talk about. Like we had John Levy on our podcast and, you know, he had like CTs of 50 of these that he'd had. And I think he's particularly interested in this problem. So he's collecting them. But, you know, he mentioned that he thinks that some of them are impingement related. Um, there's also people who talk about this being related to base plate screw positioning, that if you get your screw in the wrong spot, that maybe that's the source of a lot of them. Do you think these other alternative explanations play a role in some cases? I mean, are each of these fractures different depending on where they occur? What do you think, Steve? You know, I, th I think it's interesting. I think one of the things that you know, preoperative planning, um, understanding of, you know, all the different systems that are out now that are letting us have intraoperative kind of guidance, either with a CT navigation or augmented reality. I think we're all getting a better understanding of scapular morphology, you know, from that view of the glenoid that we get. And so I think it, it makes sense to me, you know, if you are trying to get that superior screw and you've got a drill, and you're kind of going over and over and over again, just trying to kind of guess, find a, find a column of bone that multiple passes with that drill could lead to a, a stress riser there. I think, you know, Dr. Dr. Crosby's data, my predecessor, you know, was a, um, kind of blamed that superior screw. The numbers were overall pretty small. There were, you know, only looking at 100 patients in one group, a couple hundred in the other group. So, you know, that those kind of numbers, those, those statistics get, um, are, can really get skewed with just a couple findings one way or the other. I, we haven't seen that data kind of continue forward, but I think it's because of our, um, our understanding of the anatomy a little bit better. Now when we're putting that superior screw in, we were you know, using whatever technique that you use, I think that's in bone. And so I think the screw itself probably was not responsible for a stress riser. I think it was just multiple passes. And I think, again, the planning these cases, looking at the, the scapular morphology more, I think you can avoid that now. And so I think you can feel comfortable putting a superior screw in whenever you think that you need that. Yeah, I, I talked to John about this a lot, and I would say that at least it, it, my patients, when I'm trialing patients intraoperatively, I'm not noticing significant impingement of the acromion on the greater tuberosity, um, and I am looking for that. Every now and then, you will see a patient that starts to engage at about 50 degrees or 45 degrees, and then that's a patient that I am going to adjust either my implants or maybe do a little tuberoplasty, but I'm doing that more for just post-operative range of motion been concerned that they're going to ultimately end up with a, a stress fracture. Um, but, but again, John, John thought about this a lot, and he feels pretty strongly about it. And I've had these conversations with him, and I'm not entirely sold 
Um, you know, I think the superior screw is an interesting one. I think, you know, I, I would say we all probably have some devastating, or at least in an X-ray, of a fracture propagate from the tip of that superior screw, go through the scapular spine, which, as we all know, are really the bad actors here. Um, and it's scary. And I, you know, I think there may be something to it. Uh, I do. I don't put. If I'm using a system that allows you to put a, you know, 12 o'clock or, you know, or something, maybe even just slightly posterior to that, a screw. Um, yeah, you know, I, I do that unicortically, and I do it unicortically uh, for two reasons. One is because I don't want that to go right to the base of the uh, spine of the scapula, and the other two is I think another sort of underreported issue with uh, reverses can be if that screw goes right through the spinal glenoid notch and, and bags the suprascapular nerve. Yeah, I, I feel, I've had patients, I think, that have come back and seen patients that have some pain and some you know, some excessive weakness that they've had. Now, I'll tell you, a lot of times it, it does get better, but that's just something I'm trying to avoid by a unicortical screw in that location. That's super interesting about the suprascapular nerve thing. I think that's something that probably sees us more than we see it. So we mentioned a little bit about all of Levy's work. You know, probably the most important contribution he's made is with the classification scheme. So Tell me, Larry, are you using this classification scheme clinically? Is it helpful to you in deciding what to do? Yeah, 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 it is. Um, I, I mean, I, I think one and two, I'd probably lump into the similar uh, categories because one and two are the ones that, I, I mean, I don't want to see, but I do think that we got a shot at getting these patients through it not operatively. It, it's the type threes, the ones that are way posterior at the really scapular spine fractures. Th those, are, those are bad actors. And uh, those are ones that I've learned from John. I'll be honest with you, I've never fixed one myself. Um, and, uh, but, but I do think based on the work that John has done, the next time I see one acutely, I think it makes some sense to try to fix it uh, acutely. Because I think one of the problems we've run into in the past is that we have waited for these to go into non-unions. And we know that the bone is bad to begin with. And then you're trying to deal with the non-union. And, uh, and that's part of the reason probably why we've had not so great outcomes with fixing those historically. Um, but I also know that if you let it go on to a non-union, it's kind of game over for that patient. And so I think it's probably worth a shot trying to salvage that shoulder by fixing it. But the ones and twos, my algorithm right now would be to continue to treat those non-operatively. I'll, I'll tell you, anecdotally, I've had a couple patients, I'm sure like all of us, right, you, you see your own complications and then you see everybody's complications, uh, you know, regionally. And so... You know, I've seen a handful of these where everything with the surgery looks like it was done great, um, and then they develop a scapular spine fracture, and they're usually exactly that high-risk patient. And I've had some patients that are just adamant about not wanting another surgery, and so we've just kind of watched them through this non-operatively. We've gotten, um, we've used a bone stimulator, we've used these big, you know, abduction pillow braces. Um, where it looks like they have a rolled up sleeping bag under their arm just to really try to offload that. And we've seen these patients become completely asymptomatic. And I think the literature is pretty damning on these fractures that they will just always do miserable. I mean, there's some data that says they'll do, they'll have worse scores than they had preoperatively. And it's, it's just interesting to see. And I had one of my own patients um, come in this year or come in this uh, last week um, and for a one-year follow-up, and we're doing her, getting her subjective data, and she's like 90% shoulder, I'm doing great, I don't have any pain, and oh, by the way, I noticed I have more motion now than I did at the six-month follow-up, and we get an x-ray, and she's got a scapular spine fracture, and completely asymptomatic from it, blew me away. Uh, now, my, she's had multiple C-spine um, surgeries done as well, and so I kind of, I called my 
my my you know spine buddies and said well, is this like Charcot's shoulder like what's going on this lady's completely asymptomatic from that but that that was really uh uh unusual and honestly I got to be honest Pete Rachel I felt like you guys just jinxed me by inviting me on this podcast and that's what led to it but uh, I'm not entirely sure how to explain that so Steve what would you put the, is, is that kind of justification or rationale for trying to see those out you're not being aggressive with operating on the type threes and, and seeing if they could potentially go on the heel what what what, what do you I, do with the type three how aggressive are you yeah i mean i have um i've fixed those in the past um but when like you when i've um i've seen those chronically um you know way more than i've seen it acutely just because it's so rare and so chronically what i've done is i've taken I've converted it to a hemiarthroplasty. Um, so I've converted it to a hemiarthroplasty and then fixed it and used bone graft, um, plated it and used bone graft. And my thought was at least converting it to a hemiarthroplasty, I'm removing the deforming force, which is the, you know, the constant pull of the deltoid. And so, but honestly, the, uh, the results are pretty, you know, pretty disappointing. I've done that twice and I've not been blown away by either one of those cases, those were both chronic, like years out. And so, um, Professor Gerber has a paper that is kind of just, you know, online at uh, JSES, kind of comparing operative versus non-operative treatment um, for these, and didn't find a difference with their final outcomes or the subjective outcomes for this. And so, I, I think it's I think it's very unclear right now what to do. But I think in lieu of poor, you, you know, or kind of underwhelming data of operatively treated and then my own anecdotal you know evidence of kind of just seeing these a couple of these do very well non-operatively i think i'm going to be kind of hard pressed to to operate on these in the future patient selection is clearly important and maybe we just don't have that figured out yet steve when you do fix these or when you have fixed these how do you fix them? What kind of plates do you use? Where do you put the plates? Um, do you use anything other than plates? What do you do? Yeah. So, you know, that column of bone, if you look at, you know, your saw bones, that column of bone is not great, but a plate on the, uh, on the spine biomechanically is what's going to kind of resist this the most. You can get a, a smaller plate, but that's like a two O plate, um, kind of just above the spine by, you know, peeling off the supra, which is in these patients non-existent anyway. And so I add bone graft. These are elderly patients. I'm not, I'm not convinced that autograft bone um, is really a huge advantage over allograft. And so I've just used allograft bone for this and demineralized bone matrix, trying to add some biology just because these are chronic. And then, like I said, I think, you know, controversial, but in my mind, um, um, you know, converting the reverse to a to a hemiarthroplasty at least you know makes sense to me in my head um, that at this point you know function is kind of out of the window anyway, and we're going for pain, trying to get the pain control, trying to get the fracture to heal. And so in my mind, even if I decrease their function, if I could help them with their pain, that's what I, that's kind of what I'm thinking. And then I try to use a bone stimulator uh, postoperatively as well. I think it's so hard to have that, you know, kind of data-driven uh, plan or an algorithm for this just because it's so rare. And so I just try to do what's commonsensical. 
Steve, have you converted those hemis back to reverses once you felt like you got the scaphoid spine fracture to heal? I haven't, no. At, the, at that point, um, again, my N is two. And so mm -hmm. at that point, they were like, okay, hey, I feel a little bit better. I'm super surgeried out at this point. And so, you, you know, again, I think at that point there, the expectations have kind of been lowered so much that as soon as they're at all happy, nobody's begging me to convert them back to a reverse. That makes sense, no doubt. What are your thoughts? Is that overkill? Is that is that changing anything? Should I just kind of, my thought is trying to plate it as it is with this thing kind of, you know, flex down like it is. I just, I, I'm not sure that fixing it without doing anything else would be worth, even worth a shot. The bone is so miserable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that definitely, it, it gives you the best shot to get union. And then, and then I guess once you get union, you do have the option to potentially convert it back to reverse if the patient still wants another crack at it, you know? So I think that probably gives you your best shot to fight another day. Um, I've heard Joaquin Sanchez to tell us say the same thing that he has not been able to get them to heal without uncoupling the reverse in some capacity. Um, but, but then, you know, but then you have others out like John, for example, and Peter, or Rachel, I'm not sure what your experience has been with getting to heal, but they, you know, they don't uncouple it. They repair it. They do 90, 90 plating and put, you know, John will put infuse in, um, and, and, and he's starting to get some decent results. You know, it's sort of interesting because I think his argument is that, um, right. We need to be even more aggressive with these, but it's always because if we get to them acutely, then we have the best shot at getting it to heal. And part of the problem with why there's bad results in the literature is because a lot of those, again, have gone on to non-union, the chronic scenarios. And so, but it's always a little hard to say, hey, we got a surgery that's not great, uh, and how are we going to make it better? Well, we need to do more of it. And we need to be more aggressive with, with doing it. So <laughs> right. it's, a little bit of a leap of, it's a little bit of a leap of faith, but, um, but maybe there's something there. Uh, Pete, what do you, Pete, Rachel, what do you guys think about fixing these? What's your experience then? Yeah, I've, I've fixed a couple of them now, and I've, I, I personally think the indications for fixing them are when there's a patient who's doing well and then there's a scapular spine fracture. So the Levy type three, you mentioned that's the bad actor. And then the patient can no longer raise their arm after a period of non off treatment or the, all of a sudden the reverse is unstable. And I've definitely seen that. Or all of a sudden you lose that tension and then the patient no longer has stability within the construct. But I, I'm with you that, and this is what I was so curious to hear you guys' thoughts, that I do think there are patients that can do well with these fractures, and I've seen that. So I have trouble predicting who's who's going to be the patient who does well and who's going to be the patient who still can't raise their arm three months later, and now I'm going to say, I wish I'd fixed this three months ago. So I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts. What what is the future hold? Are we going to be able to predict in the future who the who the real bad actors here on these fractures? What do, what do you what do you think, Larry? What where do you think the next steps yeah. are for this injury? I'm just, uh, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I'm really, I'm pessimistic as to our ability to definitively identify who's going to do well and not do well with operative versus non-operative treatment of a scapular spine fracture. And, and I think as Steve has said this before, I mean, the numbers are so low, it'll probably take us a lifetime to get enough data points to be able to definitively say one way or another. So I think the real key is going to be to try to prevent it in the first place. And, and my hopes are with preoperative planning, um, we will get to a point where we start to have enough data points for a certain body habitus, a scapular morphology, 
uh, a uh, you know, list of comorbidities such as osteoporosis or the vitamin D levels or so, um, and, and then be able to in real or virtually beforehand be able to simulate what that surgery is going to look like and what sort of forces are we going to subject onto the acromion and be able to adjust our, our implant plant decision and implantation accordingly. That I do think would probably is a reasonable solution within our lifetime. Um, and probably the, the only thing that's going to start to move the needle on us. What do you think, Steve? I know you're the, a deep thinker in this area. What's, what's the next step? No, I think, I think that's it too. I think, uh, you know, I agree with everything Larry said. And then I, I think the other thing is this uh, kind of this understanding that really, you know, that we look at the scapula and we just say, boy, that's a goofy shaped bone. And we say, boy, these look really different, you know, when we're looking at big groups of them or if we're doing cadaveric studies, you know, when we're doing the biomechanical things and looking at sawbones, it's easy to think that these are all the same. And then you do these cadaveric studies and you're just blown away by the variability of this bone. Um, and so I think, you know, we'll, we'll get to the point where the morphology is better understood and the classifications will be broken down by the scapular, the underlying morphology, and we'll input somebody's CT scan. And, you know, somebody like yourself and Rachel will have done all the heavy lifting and it'll, you know, tell us like this is a Chalmers and Frank type seven scapula. They're going to be at our highest risk group for, you know, post-op fracture based off their morphology. And so maybe we'll adjust their rehab differently. Maybe we'll, you know, treat them with, uh, you know, we'll make sure they're on osteoporosis treatment, things like that. Treat them like our fragility fracture patients, things like that. And that's how we'll adjust this a little bit. And we'll have identified other patients that are just in such a low risk group that probably nothing that we do matters. And we can just go about surgery, you know, as, as usual for them. Steve, I just, if, if I ever make a classification team that has seven categories, I need you to call me and tell me I need to collapse be, the categories. Nobody can remember that many categories. That's, that's, the, that's a type <laughs> seven out of 32. It's going to go deep, yeah, deep go yeah. deep with it. Yeah. There's some, there's some like in. resident right out there who's groaning, like, please, no, don't yeah. do it. <laughs> see, see, what's, I, the, what's the Chalmers at Frank 23 again? Yeah, it's going to be tough. <laughs> But that's so if I can geek out a little more here and talk some science fiction or so, but I really think within our careers, um, uh, we're going to get rid of a lot of these classification systems and we are going to use the machine learning to be able to identify risk factors that the human eye just probably isn't going to be able to comprehend. I mean, our inter and intra observer reliability is poor for a lot of these classification systems anyways. And then when you put on maybe 20 different factors that may all contribute varying degrees to something relatively rare, like a, a stress fracture, you know, I, I just don't, I, I don't think, I think now every you know, major industry, every system, as some form of 3D planning software. There's a lot of CAT scans being done. There's a lot of CAT scans being uploaded into the, these databases. And, and I, think, um, I think at some point we're going to be able to get some machine learning that's going to be able to start to answer these questions for us. Because I, I, yeah, I don't think we're going to be able to chip away at it one at a time. It's going to take too long, unfortunately. For sure. I can't, I can't wait until Skynet tells me about my next acromial fracture. fracture. <laughs> you guys were awesome. I, I can't tell you I appreciate it. I, did, I never, did you guys, are you guys friends? Like, I didn't know that you guys were going to play off each other so well. You have just like a great repartee. It was amazing. I hey, really appreciate Larry you guys coming is, on. Larry is my guy. Are you kidding me? That's Go my way, guy. Way back. Yeah.
So, You're a international duo. Congress, shoulder and elbow. Again, we'll, 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 we'll run it back this year. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you guys both for coming on. This is amazing. Great. Thank you guys Thank so much. Thank you for, for having, having us. A great job putting this program together. It's been a lot of fun for us to participate. And we enjoy listening to them as well. So, so kudos to you, Jeff. Great work. Well, thank you both so much. And Pete, I just want to clarify, everyone in the ASCS is friends, um, including uh, Steve and Larry. So we're, we're all we're all best friends. But I, I agree with, with Pete. You guys were phenomenal and, and one of the best dynamic duos we've had. So um, thank you both for being on. That is all the time we have for today's podcast. Again, we want to thank our guests so much for donating their time to us and to the ASCS listeners. And for all of our Shoulder and Elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.